Welcome to episode two of the How to Be an Anti-Racist podcast. Um, we're reading Dr. Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and we're going to start with chapter two, Dueling Consciousness. Again, as I said, I'm still trying to figure out the format. I really would like you to send in questions, comments, and concerns. So I created a um, email address, podcast with no S, podcast at hashtag causeascene.com, which is hashtag spelled out, causeascene.com. So I would like to start answering some questions as we move forward with um, our um, future episodes. Again, that is podcast at hashtag causeascene.com. So um, again, I'm loving, 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 um, and I'd like to hear your comments about the first episode. Um, but I'm loving how he starts every chapter with definitions. Again, that's that education educator in me. So we're going to start with what is an assimilist, what is a segregationist, and what is an anti-racist. And um, I'm just going to walk through the chapter. So an assimilist, one who is expressing the racist idea that a racial group is culturally or behaviorally inferior and is supporting a culturally or behaviorally enrichment programs um, to develop that racial group. So um, we're gonna talk about that a lot because this is something I talk about also in, in tech. Um, it's in basically every industry when you go into the workforce, but it's a lot, um, we, need to we need to challenge this in tech um, when we're expecting uh, people to assimilate, which is, oh, that's when you hear they're not a culture fit. That's individuals who expect people to come into their organization and change themselves to fit the organization rather than accommodating, which means that the culture needs to shift every time someone comes in. Um, so that's that. I just want to give you an example of how I mean um, assimilist or assimilation when I'm talking about um, improving inclusion and diversity in tech. Um, assimilist does not encourage inclusion. You can recruit them, which is diversity, but inclusion is about retention. And assimilist um, is not uh, is only interested in, in in retention if these in individuals assimilate to the already established culture. So, a segregationist, one who is expressing a racist idea that a permanently inferior uh, racial group can never be developed and is supporting policy that segregates one uh, segregates away that racial group. And then there's an anti-racist because I'm in my head trying to figure out how I'm, how I'm going to tease this out. So I'm, 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 if anybody knows me, I have to talk through things and then it makes sense. And then I have these aha moments, but I'm just going to keep going. So anti-racist is one who's expressing the idea that racial groups are equals and no, and none needs, and none needs developing, and it's supporting policies that reduce racial inequality. So, um, some people ask me constantly how I manage on Twitter and these um, on these um, platforms, basically Twitter, um, and don't get burnt out. And 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 I have a strategy. And one of the strategies I have is when we talk about segregationists, I do not engage with people who are openly white supremacists who are segregationists 
first of all, that's the first thing. I go and check their feed if they comment on my thread to see what kind of tweaks they have, what's their bio. It does me absolutely no good to engage with those individuals. They have already um, um, ideas in their head. They already have strong, strongly held beliefs that a black woman is not going to change. Actually, by engaging in them, I may make myself a target, which I'm not trying to be a martyr for this work. So um, it becomes, you know, they're scratched off my list. Uh, and so I look at, then I look at, is this a person who's in t- tech? If it's a person who's in tech who's holding these ideas, that's something, someone I'm going to engage with because that's someone that I need to highlight, first of all, because I'm sick of whisper networks and I need other people in tech to see who this person is because someone who's in a mar- um, vulnerable or marginalized group ha- ha- probably actually has to engage with this person, which will be harmful. And a lot of you good white folks who, uh, who always want to give people the benefit of the doubt, I need, you to, I need to expose this because giving them a benefit of the doubt allows them to cause harm in plain sight. And so um, then we go to, so that was page, I said I was going to tell you the page, but that was just the introduction. Um, So on page 25, he gives some data. White people are more likely than Black and Latinx people to sell drugs, and the racists consume drugs at the same rate. Yet African Americans are more likely than whites to be jailed for drug offenses. Nonviolent drug, um, black drug offenders remain in prisons for about the same length of time, uh, 58.7 months, as violent white criminals, 61.7 months. So nonviolent drug offenders are staying in, the, uh, staying in jail a few months below violent white criminals. And this goes to also um, how I uh, share articles often, how you adultify, how the the systems of white supremacy adultify um, black boys and girls and infantize um, white boys. So when you see these mass killings, um, they're always the, 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 you know, they can always figure out how to take them down without incident, without shooting them after they've killed um, people. Um, And when, when they show their, their mug shots or whatever, or they don't even show mug shots. They go and find these cute little family photos of them. But when it's a black or brown person, they find, uh, oh, also, sorry, they also have a mental illness. It's always attributed to a mental illness. And then, once, um, because that means that if it's a mental illness, you can't, they're separate from whiteness. You can extrapolate them out as an anomaly. Um, but if you if you didn't attach that what, that mental illness thing to make them different, then they would be the same as what you what happens with black people is nonviolent offenders or whatever they go find the worst um, the they create the worst mugshots. They don't look for family photos. One example that just popped in my head was recently about uh, Simone Biles and her brother being charged with um, three counts of uh, murder uh, and. Every photo I saw had her picture in it. She is not even in the household with that individual. She was not even raised with that individual. She was adopted by her grandfather who raised her with her little sister. And yet the, um, the optic that the media um, wanted to share, wanted to show was a side-by-side picture of her and her brother or just a picture of her saying that her brother was just, um, um, just charged with, uh, third degree murder. So this is how you take blackness, the greatness of blackness down. 
because she is dominating the world and has been for six or seven years. And so, but no, we can't have that. So we're going to put this picture against her. Um, that's this, this is exactly an example of how that works. And so then we, we go down to the bottom of that page and we look at 1971 and, and, and um, Richard Nixon, um, a quote, we could arrest their leaders. And this is about Black Panther. Um, um, this was anti-war leaders and black leaders. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. And this was, um, this was his domestic policy um, chief talking to Harper's Bazaar. And he said, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And this is the shit that gets me. This is why um, when white people come to me with these quote unquote facts, it shows your ignorance because the quote unquote facts have been given to you by people who intentionally misinformed you, intentionally miseducated you, and you would rather rely on that. And they intentionally miseducated all of us. And that's what we're about to get to right now um, is, is they intentionally misinformed us. And yet in 2019, you'd rather hold on to that because that's the narrative you're most comfortable with because it, it, um, supports your racist and white supremacist ideas than to get the truth. Um, on page 26, some, if not most black leaders in, a, in an effort to appear as saviors to the people of, against this menace turned around and set the black criminal alongside the white racist in, as the enemy of the people. And this is where, this is breaks my heart because I, I'm going to keep talking, reading, because I'm going to tell some, share some, some stories here. Um, because this is where it gets into when I say there is a such thing among black people in the U.S., um, such things internalized white supremacy and internalized anti-blackness. Um, the system was designed for us to separate ourselves, to hurt ourselves, to target each other. So then we are distracted and won't see what's the, the outlining, um, racial structures. We won't have time to challenge the racial structures because we're pointing fingers at each other. And I also see this in other communities like the LGBTQ community where um, they're segregating themselves and they're causing harm to the most vulnerable in those communities because the system is set up for, for us all to point fingers and to distract from all of us getting together and working together and challenging the status quo. That should be the goal of everybody, but it's going to take some time for us to get into these spaces and understand because we've been so segregated to come together and say, hey, our, our um, goals align much better than um, if we came together, our goals align um, much better than the differences that we see. So can we agree to disagree on the, the differences that aren't causing harm? Can we come to some consensus, an agreement of how we will engage so that we're reducing harm in an, in an order and in a fashion that we can all, um, individuals, marginalized groups, can target white supremacy? And then it says, um, further on page 26, the shame about Black-on-Black -black crime was on the verge was on the verge of overwhelming a generation a generation's pride about black is beautiful many non-black americans looked down on black addicts in uh, revulsion but too many black folk looked down 
on the same addicts, look down on the same addicts in shame. And again, that's that internalized white supremacy and anti-blackness. Um, I see this with, uh, um, there's the paper bag test. And if you don't know what the paper bag test is, um, it was among black people um, where um, if you were darker than a paper bag, you weren't allowed in certain groups. I know my great grandmother was Creole from New Orleans and she did not like dark skinned people. Um, and that is how white supremacy was allowed to permeate our culture, our communities, and harm and 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 put the harm of us hurting each other. Um, and then, oh, and I want to go back to this because this also speaks to when we're talking about black on black harm, and it talks about drug addicts. Um, I want to point out specifically how it's a very different um, narrative now that opioid addiction is touching white Americans, whereas crack was. Um, touched the black Americans. When crack was the thing and everybody looked down on black people who were crack addicts, they were criminals. As white people are being addicted to um, opioids, and one of the reasons that they are addicted to opioids is because, um, and I guess maybe this is a saving grace for black people, I don't know, is that because there's a fallacy in medical, um, in the medical field that blacks can endure more pain. We weren't giving opioids at the rates that white people were giving opioids and they became addicted. How opioids are getting into the black community now is by, um, is illegal matters. It wasn't from a pharmacy. It's not from a pharmacy. And um, now that it is a white issue, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a um, healthcare issue. Now it's a, it, let's sue um, pharmaceuticals uh, companies for marketing and such. So, so I just really want you to see the nuance of these, these, these um, narratives and how blackness is always the villain. It's always, it's our, always our fault. Even when the systems, we weren't bringing in crack. Um, we didn't have the power to bring in crack. Yes, there were crack, black crack dealers because that was in the neighborhoods, but we weren't the people who were bringing in crack. We weren't the people who were harvesting crack. Um, or cocaine or whatever. Um, so, but yet blame, it wasn't, but we weren't ill. We were criminals. So because we weren't ill, why, why would you um, stem the tide of crack coming into our communities? Um, on page 27, anti-racism seems like an indulgence in the face of the self-destructive behavior they were witnessing all around them. So this goes back again to, you know, anti-blackness within our communities. He says, my parents, even from within their racial consciousness, were susceptible to the racist idea that it was laziness that kept black people down. So they paid more attention to chastising black people than to Reagan's policies, which were chopping the ladder. They which were chopping the ladder that they climbed up and then punishing people for falling. And this is, I see this, I see this in my own family. I come from a family from middle Georgia, the country. My great grandfather was, um, he was, we were the, they called him crazy George because white people actually in that town were, um, were actually afraid of him. We, there were a few black families. That was a, basically a black owned town. They, they, well, I can't say black on town, but there were black families there who had land, which was rare. 
Um, and we have still have almost 700 acres of land that my great grandfather um, got from us for us. And um, he had a grocery store there. He owned a store. So white people had to come to, there was, I mean, literally when I say this town was a blink and you would miss it. There was a grocery store, a laundromat. Well, it wasn't even a laundromat back then. So that was when I was growing up. So it was a grocery store, a whale in the store and a gas station. And my grandfather, that, that was, that was the center of town. And that, you know, that you have all your churches and everything, but my grandfather, great grandfather owned the grocery store. So unless you had a car that could go to a, a bigger town, you had to go to him for groceries. And white, he, he, white people learned very quickly that he was not intimidated by them. So they called him Crazy George and they wouldn't fuck with my granddad, my great grandfather. And so if you haven't noticed, I have a little bit, just a scotch of, scotch of that in me. But it talks, that, that is the, 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 um, that whole, um, so I have my parent, my, my dad's family comes from that. And so there is a part of them that looks down on other black people. And I can tell you, I've had that too. I've, until I've educated myself, I believe what I was taught that, um, not that we were inferior because that those words don't aren't in our communities, except that no, I take that back. Those words are in our communities when it relates to poor, um, mental illness, um, people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. It's a defect in them. So again, that goes back to the assimilist thing, uh, assimilation, uh, assimilist, because it's not that we believe that they are thrown away or no good, but it's something that's a defect in them that we want to rehabilitate. So it's not about anti-racist where there's nothing wrong with them. It's the system. And this is what he talks about here. They did not think about, they did not, um, they pay more attention to chastising black people than Reagan's policies, which was chopping the ladder they climbed up and then punishing people for failing. And that's what we do. Um, so then it goes at the bottom, violent police who killed, who killed 21 people, 21 black people, for every who killed 21 black people for every white person in the early 1980s. Black youth were four times more likely to be unemployed in 1985 than in 1954, but few connected um, the increase in unemployment to the increase of violent crimes. And so I want to bring your attention to, and I'm going to put this in the show notes. There's a Twitter thread about, well, people have been talking about Jay-Z, in the NFL, um, and this Twitter thread that I'm going to share with you um, in the show notes shows this whole thing playing out, how we have blamed Black youth, Blacks in particular, uh, in general, for their current situations without looking at the circumstances that created those situations. And also in this episode, I am going to add show notes uh, about an episode from the Hashtag Cause of Scene podcast where my um, guest who lived in housing projects talks about how the Black family was torn apart um, and refutes the myth that there's um, a lack of Black family or a lack of Black men who took care of their families. This was intentional. This was planned. And so I'll, I'll make sure to add that into the show notes as well. So on page 28, Americans have long been trained to see see the deficiencies of people rather than the policies. It's pretty easy, it's a pretty easy mistake to make. People 
are in our faces. Faces, policies are distant. We are particularly poor at seeing the policies lurking behind the struggles of people. And so my parents turned away from the problem of the policies to look at the problem of the people and reverted to striving to save and civilize black people rather than liberate them. Civilizers ideology became more attractive to my parents in the face of the rise of crack and the damage it did to black people as it did to so many children uh, so many children of civil rights and black power, but in many ways, liberation theor- theology remained their phil- philosophical home and the home they raised me in. Um, and that was page 28. So at the bottom of that page, they join other black people trying to fit into white space while still trying to be themselves and save their people. Oh, this saddens me. That just breaks my heart because I see this still today. Um, this is why I say fuck civility. They were not wearing a mask as much as they were splitting into two minds. This is a kind of psychosis. It was kind of schism, um, which leads to a lot of anxiety and angst and in, in, in death in our communities. Um, and this is about what I'm about to read is so about the white gaze. And I love Toni Morrison for talking about that. And if you haven't seen her documentary, um, you need to go check that out. Uh, so W.E.B. Du Bois said in 1903, it is, it is a particular sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through, eyes of, through the eyes of others. To be an American is to be white. To be white is not to be Negro. Dueling consciousness, one, and so he gives a definition of dueling consciousness, but I want you to understand that this is how we, before I go there, this is, This is the narrative. To be American is to be white, and to be white is not to be Negro. And you can say the same thing, to be white is not to be um, those individuals who are coming across the border. To be white is not to be Native uh, Americans or indigenous um, individuals who were here before whiteness got here. To be white, to be American is to be white. And if you don't challenge that within yourself, white people, you are the problem. You are continue to be complicit. So the definition of dueling consciousness, one, one ever feels his, his two-ness. One ever feels his two-ness, W.B. Du Bois explains. An American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideas in one dark body whose dogged Strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. This is what I'm saying about, this is a schism. We're fighting ourselves and fighting the systems of white supremacy. Um, and But how the system is set up, we don't recognize we're fighting ourselves. And so we're causing ourselves so much trauma and so much harm, which doesn't give us space to, to do anything against the system of systems of white supremacy. The duel within black consciousness seems to usually be between anti-racist and assimilist ideas. Du Bois believed in both the anti-racist concept of racial relativity of every racial group looking at itself with its own eyes and the assimilist concept of racial standards of looking at one's own self through those eyes, through the eyes of another racial group, in this case, white people. 
In other words, he wanted to liberate white people, uh, wanted to liberate black people from racism, but he also wanted to change them, to save them from their, their relic of barbar barbarism. Think about, just think about that. Think about our leaders in our black communities who are trying to liberate blackness through the eyes or through the lens or through the systems of white supremacy of assimilation. Assimilist ideas are racist ideas. Assimilists can position any racial group as, a superior, as the superior standard that another, another racial group should be measuring itself against, the, big, the benchmark they should be trying to reach. Assimilists typically positioned white people as the superior standard. So, yeah, this I, I, this this is so um, painful to to read. I don't I don't know about you, but um, okay. So on page thirty, the last sentence: Black self self reliance was a double edged sword. One side was the abhorrence of white supremacy and white paternalism, um, white rulers and white saviors. On the other, a love of black rulers and black saviors and black paternalism. On one side was the anti-racist belief that black people were entirely capable of ruling themselves and relying on themselves. On the other, the assimilist idea that black people could, should focus on pulling themselves up by their baggy jeans and tight and tighter and tight halter tops, getting off crack street corners and government handouts as if those were the things partially holding their incomes down. These dueling consciousness nourished black pride by insisting that there was nothing wrong with black people, but it also cultivated shame with its implication that there was something behaviorally wrong with black people, while at least those other black people, well, at least those other black people. Um, if the problem was in our own behavior, then Reagan's revolutionary revolutionaries we're not keeping black people down. We were keeping ourselves down. And this is where I'm going to stop and talk about MLK, because this is where I just love when white people want to bring out the, the I have a dream speech, but don't want to talk about the fact that towards the end of his life, um, MLK was more in line with um, Malcolm X and black power movement because he stopped. He started to realize he was realizing that he was an assimilist and that being an assimilist, he had caused his um, community to be harmed. And I will also add that to the thread of, um, for um, this, this, the show notes, this article, or not, not an article, it's an interview of Martin Luther King 13, um, 11 months before he was killed. This is the article that got him killed. This, these are the, the sentiments that got him killed. Um, it was when he, recognized that we were more aligned with the poor people's movement and um, we would be more aligned with poor people and whites realized that no, he was making an alignment or making comparisons that whites were going to start listening to, poor whites were going to start listening to and aligning. And just, okay, I just pulled that up because I want to make sure that I'm going to to remember to put that in the show notes and on the headline in all red at the top of this NBC news, it says morning rundown millions brace for Dorian, which is the um, 
which is the hurricane, comma, a shooter's downward spiral, and Simone Biles on her brother's arrest. This right here is what I'm talking about. Why does she even need to speak on her brother's arrest? Okay, so we will continue. White people have their own dueling consciousness between the segregationists and the assimilists, the slave trader and the missionary, the pro-slavery explorer and the anti-slavery civilizer, the eugenicist and the melting potter, the mass incarcerator and the mass developer, the blue eyes matter and the all lives matter, and the anti-racist nationalist and the not the not racist nationalist and the not racist American. Assimilist ideas and segregationist ideas are the two types of racist ideas. The dueling between, I mean, the dueling within racist thought. Right, assimilist ideas challenge racist, I mean, segregationist ideas that claim people of color are incapable of development, incapable of reaching their superior standard, incapable of becoming white and therefore fully human. Assimilists believe that people of color can, in fact, be developed, become fully human, just like white people. Now, I want you to understand that. The standard is always whiteness. This assimilist ideas reduce people of color to the level of children needing instruction on how to act. Segregationist ideas, ideas cast people of color as animals. So, to use Trump descriptors, Trump's descriptor of Latinx, Amer, uh, Latinx immigrants, untouchables after um, a point. The history of racialized of a of the racialized world is a three-way fight between assimilists, segregationists, and anti-racists. Anti-racist ideas are based on in the truth that racial groups are equal in all the ways they are different. Assimilists ideas are rooted in the notion that certain racial groups are culturally and behaviorally if inferior, and seg- segregationist ideas spring from the belief that genetic racial distinctions um, and fixed hierarchies. So I want you to think about this as you um, in the community start engaging, continue to engage with people on Twitter, continue to engage with people in your communities and your families, because you can't have to have a strategy to do this work. And so what I want you to do when you're before, as you're thinking about engaging, you need to figure out where these individuals fall. Are these individuals segregationists who believe that racial um, is a genetic uh, distinct, distinct, excuse me, and um, a racial distinction and fixed hierarchy? If so, you're going to have a harder time, um, quote unquote, changing these people's minds. And so some of these people are going to have to be left behind as we shift the perspective of a similist who believe that is rooted in a notion that certain groups are culturally and behavior inferior. Those are the individuals that we need to spend our time on because that's the bulk of the individuals. Um, It's the same thing as with Trump supporters. His dial supporters are not going to go anywhere because they are following him or his supporters because of racial. Uh, fear. They fear that white people will be the minority. Nothing you can say about economics, about anything is going to change that. And that is why um, the book, um, ah, shoot, I can't think of the name of it right now. It must be upstairs. But um, the, uh, by Jonathan Mitz, I think his name is, about how poor whites would rather stay poor um, and not receive, um, well, not stay poor, poor whites would rather 
not get Medicaid funding, funded uh, affordable act, uh, affordable health care from, from the, I mean, yeah, health care from the affordable, because I don't want to call it Obamacare because that's not what it is, affordable health act, because it means they rather forego that because to get, for them to get it, they understand that black and brown people get it. And so they would rather, that's what in the South we call cutting off your nose to spite your face, throwing out the baby with the bath water. There's so many of those little terms. But that's, those are those segregationists. Those are the individuals that I have no time for because there's no way I'm going to move. So why would I spend my energy there? If it's somebody in your family you love and, and care for, you go right ahead. But our energy should be spent on the bulk of the people who are assimilist. Um, and those are the people who, so again, when it comes to the election, I'm not trying to, we are not going to convert diehard Trump people. Where we're gonna com- who we're gonna convert are those wishy-washy white folks, who um, who are just waking up to the fact that they have privilege that they thought it was unearned privilege that they're just recognizing that they're not as special as they thought they were. Um, those are the individuals who we need to be working with. On page thirty-two, um, there never was a civilized nation of any other comp comp. Ugh, there was. Ugh, uh, Okay, so this was as an Enlightenment uh, philosopher, David Holm, wrote in 1753, there was never a civilized nation of any other complexion than white. And I'm just going to keep hitting you with this. While segregationist ideas suggest a racial group is permanently inferior, a similist idea suggests a racial group is temporarily inferior. Just the fact that they believe that there's inferiority in there is so about privilege is so about discrimination. And again, I have to turn the mirror on my black community. We need to stop this. We need to stop seeing other people as inferior to us. I've had conversations with many people about Almarosa. Will I, do I want to go sit down and have dinner with her? No, she's not. I, I'm sure there are a lot of things we just don't have in common. So I would not want to have sit down and have dinner with this woman. But will I throw her out as as, as we say, she can never come back to the picnic. No, I'm not going to do that because what I'm going to, what I can show you is she is a one black person, black woman who figured out a way to play that game in such a way that she got to the highest levels and the highest levels of government. And they still underestimated her. They still saw, saw her as inferior because she was allowed to take both audio and video recording equipment into the situation room. They didn't even think, it's like when, you know, the slaves, they would say anything around them at the dinner table, whatever, because, oh, you, you don't matter. You're not a threat to me. They didn't even consider that a black woman, black women will document everything because we need to cover our ass, but they didn't even consider her as a, as a, even a threat. So yeah, I see it. So I'm no, I'm not going to throw her away. Um, the dueling white consciousness fashion, two types of racist policies reflecting the dual of racist ideas. Since assimilist posits racial and behavioral hierarchy, assimilist policies and programs are geared towards developing, civilizing, and integrating a racial group to distinguish. Um, so it's talking about programs to uplift the individual. Since segregation is posit um, the incapacity, the incap- uh, incapability of a racial group to be civilized or developed. Segregationist policies are geared towards segregating, enslaving, incarcerating, deporting, and killing. Since anti-racist posit that the racial groups are 
already civilized anti-racist policies are geared towards reducing racial inequalities and creating uh, equal opportunity. White people, I underline this sentence, white people are generally advocating for both assimilist and segregationist policies. People of color are generally advocating both anti-racist and assimilist policies. This dual desire, this dueling consciousness yielded and in inner strife between black pride and yearning to be white. And I can tell you growing up, I didn't understand this at all, but I was the only child and my mom spent a lot, we, we did feast or famine always. And when we had feasts, when she had extra money, she was always putting me in some programs, always putting me in something. And I was always the only. And I could tell you not under, even having the vocabulary, I, knew that being white was a better situation than it was being black in those spaces. And I knew that, but I didn't have the language. And because I knew that and didn't have the language, it caused me such internal harm. It caused me so much trauma. And this is another reason why I, I, mm, I have a part time with people who, who are having black and brown babies and who are adopting black and brown babies who are white parents. Because if you're not ready to reckon with this, when your black and brown young person is going to go out into the world, if you're not ready to deal with the fact that you are still complicit in harming your black and brown child, I see this is no different than child abuse. Because you, and, and, and a very violent um, aspect of child abuse, because your black and brown young person sees you as you're the first indicator, the first example of what love looks like. And if you're gaslighting them, if you're um, not, if they feel that coming to you to tell you about their lived experience of being traumatized and hurt in the real world away from you will hurt your feelings and make you uncomfortable. If they can't tell you that, that's child abuse. Um, and on page 33, the dueling white consciousness has from its position of relative power, shaped the struggle within black consciousness. And so I underlined this and then I wrote in the margins, what I'm about to say now is, this is about civility and uh, tone policing. The white consciousness duels. The white body defines the American body. The white body segregates the black body from the American body. The white body instructs the black body to assimilate into the American body. The white body rejects the black body assimilating into the American body and history and consciousness duel anew. So the white body says only whiteness is American. So black people need to be to be American. You need to be more white. But then you reject the white body and then we can never be. So that's the thing. So this is why I throw off a, a, a civility and I throw off all these other things because the way the system is set up, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. We'll never get there, but your whiteness is always hand, has the carrot in front of us. Keep going one more step, that's the line. And then we get to that line, they move the line. Okay, keep going one more step and that's the line. The black body in turn experiences the same duel. The black body is instructed to become the American body. The American body is the white body. The black body strives to assimilate into the American body. The American body rejects the black body. The black body separates from the American body. The black body is instructed to assimilate into the American body and the history and consciousness duel anew. But there is a way to be free 
To be anti-racist is to emancipate oneself from the dueling consciousness. To be anti-racist is to conquer the assimilist consciousness and this segregationist consciousness. The white body no longer presents itself as the American body. The black body no longer strives to be the American body, knowing there is no such thing as the American body, only American bodies racialized by power. <sighs> so that was chapter two. And so when I was reading through this, something that came to my mind is, um, and based on the conversations that we're having back and forth on Twitter, I want this to be the beginning. I don't, I see the need for this. I don't want us to stop at this book. So what this will become is the anti-racist tech agenda. I'm still going to figure this out as we go through these 18 weeks. And I would like your um, opinions about this. Um, if they are aligned with anti-racist ideology. If you're coming to me with some segregationist or some assimilist bullshit, you will be shut down. So I really want to have this because I want to have these conversations, ongoing conversations, so we can really figure out how to um, redefine capitalism without white supremacy in, in the tech space, how we can re really start creating positive services that don't harm our, our, our employees and our customers and clients. So just know that this is the big, just the beginning of an anti-racist tech agenda. And if you have any questions, comments, and concerns, please send them to podcast at hashtagcausescene.com. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the Hashtag Causescene podcast. I would like once again to give thanks to the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, Professor Ibram X. Kendi. Learn more about his work at his website at ibramxkindy.com. Please consider becoming an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Call the Scene movement by visiting the website at hashtagcallthescene.com. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Call the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.